Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Greg Wyshynski. Greg, one of the best hockey writers in the business, friend of the show. He works for ESPN. He is the co-host of the ESPN on Ice podcast. He also writes the wish list every Friday. It's a can't miss hockey column. And he also uh, is the driving force behind a great podcast called Puck Soup, which I have been a big fan of uh, since its inception. Uh, there was once an entity called Nerdist Sports, which existed for a brief amount of time, uh, which mostly consisted of my podcast and Puck Soup. Which was Greg Wyshynski, Greg Wyshynski and Dave Lozo. Mr. Lozo is now working, uh, hard on Katie Nolan's new show at ESPN. It's a great show. You should check that out. Dave does great work. It is extremely funny. And Greg, uh, the podcast lives on Puck Soup with Ryan Lambert and Sean McIndoe. Uh, check that out. Check out, uh, Greg's writing at ESPN.com. He's got a great feature on minor league hockey and kind of up and coming hockey in Alabama. Spurred on by the success of the Nashville Predators. Really cool story. You should check that out. As we were talking on the podcast, uh, I had said, uh, he, he told me about that story and I was like, I gotta read that. I read it. It was really good. You should read it too. And, uh, you'll like this pod, uh, hockey talk, journalism talk, and, uh, lots of other stuff. When I first started ESPN, it was funny to kind of walk around the halls of, uh, ESPN headquarters and, and stay at that one hotel in town where like Mike Ditko would be there over breakfast. So I always thought that was kind of funny. So we reminisced a little bit and shared some stories about Bristol and the weird, weird place that it is. Uh, good chat with Mr. Wyshynski. Some programming notes. Hey, I've written 70 trillion articles for CBSSports.com in the last few days. Check out my article called the Get Paid All-Stars, which used to be the worst contracts, but we don't say that anymore because you know what? Players are getting less and less of the total share of money at this point in Major League Baseball. So get paid. Go get paid. Albert Pujols, Chris Davis, Miguel Cabrera. So what? If your money exceeds your production, I don't care. You deserve it. You have at it. Go for it. Uh, also a piece on uh, catcher JT Rail Muto and uh, the crumbling market for catchers. You can check that out. Uh, let's see. It did a piece on the class of 2021. Wow. That's going to be a good one. Lindor, Correa, Baez, Story, uh, lots of great shortstops in that class. Uh, so be sure to check that out as well. Corey Seager is the other one. And, uh, all over the place for CBS Sports, really, uh, writing up a storm during the off season. And I hope you enjoy all that good content over there. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. It is with Mr. Greg Wyshynski. Enjoy. Pleased to be joined on the podcast by a friend of the show, lover of cherry cricket, puck soupian, great man about town, Greg Wyshynski. How's it going? It's going well. I'm actually in uh, lovely uh, Bristol, Connecticut, as we speak, at uh, ESPN HQ. Yes, and uh, and it was uh, it was fun. Uh, we it, my other podcast, you mentioned puck soup. My other podcast 
ESPN and Ice with me and Emily Kaplan, we did a live uh, call-in show cool. podcast today, which was really uh, fun. And I'm I'm proud to report that only one of the calls was uh, fake and and to make sure that we had a call. <laughs> the rest of them were real, and that's pretty impressive. That's awesome. So before we get to anything else, uh, I tra- tread, trotted, trowed. I trouded those halls for a few years myself uh, in Bristol. And, uh, well, I'm going to tell a, a brief story or two, and then I want to ask you some stuff. One of my favorite things was, you know, there's no hotels there. There's like one hotel. It's a double tree. And so everybody stays there. So... You know, you're staying, and I was doing baseball tonight at the time for like three, four nights in a row. And you go downstairs in your pajamas, and Mike Dick is holding court over breakfast at like 9.30 in the morning. There's 5,000 people there. I'm like, what? This is so weird. And my favorite thing, <laughs> I'm going to back this up with a story. So a story within a story. When I was like five, my parents took me to a Chinese restaurant in Montreal, five or six, and we were sitting there, and my dad said, hey, that's Larry Robinson. And that's a very big deal in Montreal if you're five or six years old. He's a Hall of Famer. This is Larry Robinson. And I'm five or six. I'm like, well, Larry Robinson doesn't eat in restaurants where I eat. You're wrong. And this is this goes on for an hour and a half. And then at the end, Larry Robinson leaves, and my dad says, you're missing your chance to talk to Larry Robinson. And then I start crying, and I say, what are you talking about? It's Larry Robinson. I can't believe I missed him. Fast forward to when I'm an adult, maybe 40 at this point. And I'm in the gym at the Double Tree, and there's only one other person there. He's about six six. He's a flat top, and I'm talking to him. And I said, are you, "He asked me, are you using this whatever it was? Let's say one pound dumbbell or something, probably." <laughs> and I said, "No." And I was like, "Well, that guy looks and sounds exactly like Chris Mullen." And my favorite thing, maybe in the world, is to play NBA Jam. With the Golden State Warriors using Chris Mullen and Tim Hardaway, myself and my friend Benjamin Hockman, uh, a great sports writer. That's all we would do for years when we were in Denver. We'd just go there and play NBA Jam. Time. Chris Mullen is there. I could have talked to him for two hours. I'm like, well, it can't be Chris Mullen. That's impossible. Why would Chris Mullen be asking for my one-pound dumbbell? And it was Chris Mullen, and I spent all day on campus looking for Chris Mullen and asking every producer in PA or whatever, and they couldn't find Chris Mullen, and I never got to talk Chris Mullen, and now I don't work at ESPN anymore, so I'm very bummed. Anyway, that is my long preamble. The double tree situation was is really surreal. It yes, kind of makes you. It's it's almost like you're in the green room at a at an award show or something. You know, it's that everywhere you look is is a face that you recognize, but you're not sure if it's cool to talk to them. And and I remember that when I came here for like orientation. Yeah, like I have met all the ESPN hockey people before on and off, mm-hmm. but I mean by no means would I ever say that I was like super tight with them like I kind of am now. Yeah, and like. You know, I'm in the double tree and I'm, I'm checking in. It's my orientation. And who comes shuffling down to the, the little commissary to grab some, you know, a, a Red Bull and a, a, a power bar or something? It's, it's Barry Melrose. Yes. And he's in athletic shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah. So he's not, in, he's not in, in full uniform. Right. As we've come to know him. And I'm like, What's the protocol here? Do you go up and do you, do you, can I say hi to him? Is he, is he off duty? He's not wearing a loud suit. Um, so it's a, it's a really surreal thing, and and it is funny. Like Bristol's real funny in the sense that like, you know, every every uh, restaurant you go to, it, you know, it, 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 everybody knows everybody, and everybody's asking you about everybody, and 
because uh, there's only like three restaurants you that are that are here. Yes, <laughs> so well, that must mean the two have opened since I left three years ago. I guess yeah. <laughs> more than a few, but it's it's a real surreal experience, and and that's uh, it's it's an interesting feel. It is like being on campus at a, at a small university uh, in the sense that everything is here and everybody knows everybody, and and inevitably your social interactions are kind of influenced by by spending so much time here. It's 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 a really interesting experience. Well, it's laid out like a campus. There's a cafeteria where people are just sitting or whatever. And I, you know, it was a few years that I was there and I just never I don't know when you go from being other to being part of the Borg, so to speak. Like I, I always felt other. You know, I was there even on my own show, like, okay, well aside from Kurt Schilling, that's a whole other story, but like Mark Mulder and Doug Lanville and these people like are good and did stuff and made diving catches or whatever and I'm some asshole and like I I never really quite got it. And like, you know, that we would share the green room uh with the NFL folks. So like Jerome Bettis would come in and he's the nicest guy and I, how's it going? And I'm like, I why am I here with Jerome Bettis? I never got that and I, I'm I obviously you're new so I, I don't know but I mean I'm going to be interested to check back with you in let's say hopefully two three four years and see if you're like yeah yeah I was there and then whoever showed up and it was fine and we we're cool we're tight you know he came over because it just it really does feel like you're a visitor unless you're very much in the DNA of the place yeah and, and you know I think part of that is is you know I live in Manhattan yeah so I'm kind of like skydiving in to come here on occasion when necessary most of my interactions are on a very sort of uh task-based basis you know yeah. like, uh, oh i'm gonna be on tv so i'm gonna talk to this person now um you know there are a few familiar faces here and there but you know being a being a hockey writer that parachutes in every three weeks <laughs> it does not necessarily uh you know I, I don't think i'm up for any yearbook superlatives yet uh but uh but maybe one day well and let me ask you too and you touched on this too at, at the uh, excellent website known as gregwashinsky.com, but, uh, you discuss the, the culture of ESPN and that it's not a hockey place. And I mean, for people who listen to you on Merrick versus Wachinski or Puck Super or anywhere reading you at Puck Daddy, you've always expressed some ambivalence about the way that the, that ESPN covered hockey. That once upon a time, this was a hub that the, these were formative years for you, let's say in the nineties and that you, you could really get a lot of hockey on ESPN. And then of course, famously, you couldn't for years and years. And here you come. Presumably to do something about that. I mean, do you view that as a challenge? Did you feel a little uncomfortable with the harsh words that you had for ESPN when they started recruiting you? Like, how did that all go down? Well, I mean, the, one, the, the first answer to that is that I always, and, and people that have read me, I think, know that I've always differentiated between the coverage of hockey on air and the coverage of hockey in other places. Like, yeah. the dot-com situation here has never been an issue. Well, mm-hmm. Back when Pierre Lebrun and Scott Burnside sure. and Joe McDonald and Craig Gustins were here, and Katie Strang as well. Like, it was always really good coverage. Um, it's just that, you know, when they don't have the rights to the sport, yeah. uh, the coverage of it is is going to be exponentially smaller than everything else. And, and that sucks because I know that there's a huge following of it. So one of my tasks here was to try to, you know, show proof of concept. And and the good, the good thing that happened in my first year here is that um, it was twofold. The first is that some really amazing things happened in hockey that crossed over to the casual fans. And that was the Washington Capitals cup run. Yep. And that was the Vegas Golden Knights story. Um, and, and those two things happening in the same year, uh, really helped the transition because all of a sudden 
I'm on Sports Center. All of a sudden, you know, these games are getting covered in a pretty significant way. They were stories that transcended hockey, and, it, and it's, you know, it, it, it helped. When when the NHL enters the zeitgeist like that, it shows that that you know there is play to be had for the sport here. Um, the other good thing is that they kind of got the rights back. Um, their deal with MLB Advanced Media yep. uh, gives them a, 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 an NHL game streaming on an ESPN Plus every night. So now all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> the stuff that that Emily Kaplan and I write is getting promoted. Uh, in significant ways, if it ties into the game that's on that night, then of course for those games, really strong. Uh, so, so you know, while in the past, <laughs> yeah, I've been you know really frustrated at times with the way that the sports been presented. I, I come in at a time when things kind of start turning the corner a little bit. Mm. I want to believe that like we came on board as a part of that. Um, you know, the the thing that we both heard during the process of coming here was. They wanted to kind of approach the sport in a different way and 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 do it in more of a, a fan centric way and do it in more of a featurey way and, and not necessarily do the kind of nuts and bolts here's what the GMs are saying off the record kind of reporting hmm. which we do but we also do a bunch of other stuff stuff too and I think it's it's picked up traction and it's resonated and and it's kind of been fun to be a part of this sport on the upswing in the halls of this place the vegas thing is so interesting and, and although it did definitely gain traction on national level i feel like if there was an expansion nfl team and then they went to the super bowl we would be talking about this 700 years later like it was such a huge story and now i feel it's almost oh yeah well vegas did that by the way vegas is absolutely on fire again and threatening to take yeah. over the pacific they're really really good once again one of my, I wouldn't say great regrets, let's call it a minor regret. A couple of years ago, I was in Vegas, actually with our mutual pal Dave Lozo and our bunch of nerds drafting our crazy 90s sport fantasy league. And, uh, and it was, and the arena had been built basically, it was waiting to be open and it's right there on the strip. You know, you have a week I could touch it. I walked out of whatever it was in New York, New York and it was right there. And I was like, ah, I wanted to go to a game. Tell me what the, you've been to, you know, all the arenas obviously, or certainly most of them. What is the atmosphere like there versus in, you know, Toronto, New York, Chicago, because I, I feel like it would have a little bit of a difference. And, and I, I mean that only in the most positive way. I would have loved to have seen a game there. I do plan to go there, and I wish I had in the inaugural season. Yeah, I mean, the, the things you heard about it are all true when, when you're there. Um, it, it's not hyperbole to say that it is one of the most unique arena-going experiences yeah. that you can have in the NHL with the, the, the right balance between the kitsch of Vegas and, and the 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 thing you want out of a hockey game to get you fired up it the best the best way to to, to put it is is that it's sensory overload i mean from the the pregame stuff that was featured on tv to the drum core they have there yep. everything that's going on in these games it, it it really can be disorienting and you know I, I remember talking to steven stamkos after the lightning played there last year it was a, a, a top of the conference matchup between those two teams and he just said you know this is the atmosphere that you get in the playoffs you're not supposed to get this kind of atmosphere this early in the season and that's what Vegas was getting so it was as much a part of their home ice advantage as all of the other things <laughs> which is another another story that got a lot of play for me last year on ESPN but yeah. Uh, but yeah it's it's a it's a cool story and uh and and one that was you know really inspiring because i think that there were some cynics many more cynics about Vegas than there are for Seattle uh who questioned whether or not this team could work there and, uh, you know, the, the, their owner, Bill Foley, meticulously proved his case 
sold the requisite number of season tickets and not ha- didn't have a single casino buy one through yeah. the first round of, of, of sales and uh, and believed in the market and, and knew what he had there. And it's just become this really incredible experience and, and a place that the locals feel as welcome there as, as the visiting fans do. Yeah, it's a huge local population base. It's expanded a great deal in recent years. And, you know, maybe there's something there when it's, it's certainly not the only show in town. It goes to say, obviously in Vegas, but as far as sports go, you know, at least until the Raiders come on board. And of course, Columbus has that, uh, to some extent. Ohio State is sure, but I mean, you know, in terms of pro and, you know, Ottawa, I guess. And you just look for that and you're wondering about where the support could come. And, and, and it really did. And, and I, I'm wondering too, I want to switch gears for a second and talk about Canadian clubs. And here's something that came up in the NBA recently, which I found really interesting was uh the Raptors. So the Raptors have the best record or second best record in the East right now. I think second best in the NBA. They're really good. They got Kawhi Leonard and uh Toronto's this massive city, obviously huge population base and everything like that. And then Christmas Day comes up. And Christmas Day you've got the decrepit Knicks playing and some other teams that are not that exciting. And the Raptors don't appear on TV and the reason that was cited was it had to do with, you know, how ratings show up and how it works in terms of TV contracts and it's just the Raptors might not be able to make headway in, in an atmosphere like that. They'll be on, you know, they'll be on the Turner stations or whatever from time to time, but not in a showcase like Christmas. And in the NHL, obviously, it's a different story because, you know, the sport does certainly have a a large foothold in Canada. But at the same time, you know, I'm wondering about this. Is it a good thing for hockey as a sport if, let's say, the Calgary Flames, who are very good this year and have a real shot to go to the Cup, go to the Cup? If the Winnipeg Jets go to the Cup, win the Cup, become a dynasty, does that hurt – the Chicago Blackhawks being on TV 37 times since last Thursday. Is this going to be a problem for the sport if Canadian teams that are not the Maple Leafs assert themselves a little bit? It's an interesting question uh, for a couple reasons. The first is that we've not had a Calgary-like team win in a really long time. I mean, it, since Calgary, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that has has saved that saved the NHL after the 0506 canceled season hmm. was this incredible string of original six teams and teams that might as well be original six teams that all won cups along with the the Ducks and and the Kings had their run, but that's obviously a huge media market as well. American original six teams, my friend. The Habs and the Leafs, well, the Leafs don't suck anymore, but they have sucked. Let's just be clear on their suckiness, yes. Right, right, right. So, so we don't really know how the modern NHL fan reacts to a Calgary team rising to prominence and winning the Cup. Are they all of a sudden now a marquee team if they win? Or are they just a small market Canadian team that you just skip over on the schedule? I yeah. don't know. I, I do know that, you know, the, the, the two things that have happened for the NHL that have been extraordinarily positive in the last couple of years. One is that they've got a lot of pieces to move on the chessboard when it comes to glamour franchises. You can throw in any, any but number of, of maybe like a dozen teams together and it's a marquee matchup. And that's partially because of the rise of Nashville. Uh, because of the rise of Winnipeg, but mm-hmm. also their fan base and that becoming a situation where people tune in to watch a Winnipeg game just to see what those fans do. Like, th- there's a lot more compelling franchises than they had a, te- a decade ago. The other thing that happened is that, <clears throat> um, people stopped hitting. <laughs> yes. Defense. Yes. And now the goals per game is the highest it's been in decades. And, uh, and because of that, you can, this is the first time this has ever happened to me as a hockey fan. You can tune into a game where two star players are playing. Let's say it's like Austin Matthews and Jack Eichel mm-hmm. playing in a Buffalo, uh, a Toronto game. Yep. 
you could be pretty confident that one of those guys is going to do something extraordinary in the game mm-hmm. just because of how many goals are scored per game, just because of how much the star players have room now to kind of create. And for years, the NHL has always been like, how do we market like the NBA? How do we market a star-centric product? Well, in 2019, they, they almost can. like Because the star players are now doing, if not scoring goals, they're making plays that are highlight real level just because of the where where the sport is right now insofar as defense and physicality. Well, and I think that gets to the next question then, which is let's go a few years down the road, and I'm sorry to say this for a Sabres fan or an Oilers fan or whatever, but Jack Eichel will eventually have an opportunity to test the market, and so will Connor McDavid and all these guys. Do we get to a point, okay, these are maybe viable markets and we're getting a little bit of traction. When push comes to shove and free agency comes up, is it somewhat like other sports where it's, oh, yeah, I hear that the Yankees and the Dodgers are in on Bryce Harper, and that's about it. Tampa Bay is not bidding. The Oakland A's aren't bidding, and that's it. Would Edmonton have a possibility to attract the kind of marquee talent that would surround Connor McDavid? Would Buffalo have the opportunity to attract the kind of uh, talent that would surround Jack Eichel? Could they even retain the guys that they actually have, or is this fleeting? You know, this is a few years, and then it's a given that they're going to go to wherever, New York, maybe Toronto, maybe L.A., what have you. Well, the answer to your first question is probably not. I mean, there is still a serious difference in desirability of market for these teams. And uh, and the bottom line is that you're going to have players that are always going to choose, um, you know, other teams other than, than Edmonton. Yeah. Uh, just because of, of quality of life and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the answer to your second question is that one of the things that the NHL has done, much to the chagrin of the Players Association, is basically shackled every young player to his team until they're, you know, 27. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so that starts to really play in these teams' favor in, in the sense that they can sign young players that are coming off their entry-level contracts to eight-year deals, um, you know, playing around with the money, making sure they get enough. And so you get a good decade at least run with a, a young star yep. before you have to worry about them escaping. And, and so on the one hand, that's completely restricted the chance for the NHL to have dynastic super teams. Um, but on the other hand, it does ensure that if you are, you know, fortunate enough to win a draft lottery, the guy you get number one probably can't escape for a, you know, a decade. <laughs> right. In the case of Conor McDavid. Well, and the decade is really the operative term here because that implies that these guys are going to break in preposterously early. Segway, that's the topic of the most recent wish list at ESPN.com, which you should totally read every Friday, which is a terrific hockey column and has lots of good stuff. And it talks about the youngification of the sport, which is totally a word. And the fact that you get these guys coming in earlier and earlier that, you know, somebody's drafted and at 18 they can be playing. And that is such a specific... I mean, basketball is the other one, but otherwise, it's a hockey thing. You know, it doesn't exist in baseball and it doesn't exist in football where these guys can come in and make instant contributions and it's almost demanded of them because it's becoming such a speed-oriented sport and especially because of the cap, that as soon as you have service time in this sport, nobody wants you unless you're, you know, Stamkos, unless you're a star. So I guess the question that I would ask you is, what do you make of this? There are certainly a lot of skilled 18-year-olds, but do you see... More mental errors? Do you see less cohesion when there's more youth? Or is it just, oh, yeah, bring it on. This guy's 18. He's really exciting, and I'm good with it. Yeah, but that's the good thing. Like, the the, the more mistakes we have in hockey, the better it is for hockey. That's true. You know, like, that's true. Yeah, the more offense there's going to be and everything else. So that's 
you know, the more young players that play that, that screw up, the better it is. <laughs> the game. Um, but, but your other point is, is the salient one, which is, you know, it's, it is both a, um, a blessing and a curse that there's a salary cap. It's a blessing in some ways because I think that the trickle down of talents to other teams, uh, is a real thing. And, you know, you've seen teams benefit from a team like Chicago, for example, having to trade away future assets, picks or young prospects just to move money off their cap. Um, but Chicago, the other side of that blade is that Chicago should be a, a, even more of a dynasty than they were. And, yep. uh, and the salary cap doesn't allow for that. And so it really comes down to how you really view what you want out of the, out of the league. Do you want parity? Do you want everybody to kind of have a shot? Do you want this kind of, you know, three good teams and then just a giant bowl of oatmeal in the middle? That's kind of <laughs> okay. Or, or is it better for the sport to have uh, a New England Patriots type juggernaut that, uh, that is, that everybody is measured against? And, you know, the Blackhawks for a good run of, you know, six or seven years were that. Um, but even then, they were extraordinarily lucky that they were able to reload because, I mean, after they won their first cup, they had to jettison most of the supporting cast because of the salary cap. So yeah. I, I, I'm always of the mind, and I know I'm treading in, in dangerous territory here talking to a baseball guy, <laughs> that a lug, that luxury tax would have been better for the NHL than a salary cap, uh, if only because I think that dynasties are a good thing. For sports, and I also think that penalizing teams for having drafted and developed players better than other teams is kind of counterintuitive to what we're asking for from these teams. And I think I think a salary cap in many ways does that. Well, and and let's further that discussion then, because one of my frustrations in baseball, and other people share this, is that hot stove season has become a little bit of a dud, and for actual human beings trying to get contracts in baseball, anyway. It's difficult because now teams are holding the line. Everybody's 35 years old and went to Yale. All the GMs, they're all risk averse. Owners aren't chumps anymore. And you can't get massive deals. Even Harper and Machado, oh, they're going to get $400 million. These guys might end up with four or five-year contracts and then opt-out clauses, and that's about it. That is a sea change in a big way. And it has to do maybe to some extent with the luxury tax, but it's also just this universal fiscal discipline which is either collusion or just universal fiscal discipline i'm not sure but it's something so i'm wondering about hockey let's say you took the shackles off entirely and you just said spend what you want you want to be the tampa bay rays be the tampa bay rays you want to be new york yankees be new york yankees would the maple Leafs have a 200 million dollar payroll and the jets would be 30 million and hockey would be a joke or could there be small market success stories of the kansas city royals ilk in which it doesn't matter and you could just outfox the competition and be more money ballish than somebody else and what have you would there be irrational owners would there be a big gulf would you want to see that or no well there'd be irrational irrational owners until the, the next labor stop yes uh, they can they can discipline themselves and then just do the same thing over again. Escrow. Um, no, but I, th- I think the difference with hockey is what we talked about before, which is that even if you do have teams that are uh, spending way over the limit and you know their their tax dollars get uh, dispensed to the lesser lights of the league, yep. you still have free agency rules that <clears throat> mandate that younger players have to stay with their team for right. many of their productive years. So, you know, it's one of the reasons why I thought it could work is that you know at the end of the day you are keeping these younger guys around for a good portion of their careers before they can go and, and get paid exponentially more money with Toronto or whatever. But as far as the the uh, the pecking order and all that stuff, I think the other thing about hockey versus something like baseball, too, is the fact that so many teams make the playoffs. And, and yes. the idea that if you're in the tournament, 
all you need is a, a hot goalie and a, and a couple good rounds, and all of a sudden you're playing for a championship is another sort of differentiation between them. I, I, I want to rapid fire with you through your uh, journey in journalism because, A, I know you have to get to stuff, and B, uh, there's some great stuff in here, including the fact that I realized, well, I now realize that I should have hated you back in the day, and I will tell you why. Because you worked for the Connection Newspapers of Northern Virginia. I, my first job in the United States was working for Times Community Newspapers of Northern Virginia, the arch rival of the Connection. We used to shit on the Connection newspaper. Oh, those guys, they sucked. Wow, their high school field hockey coverage is terrible. Did you see the Fairfax County court reporter? Poof! Terrible at the Connection. We slaughtered them. I was like 22, by the way, when all this was going down. <laughs> Amazing that you started at the Connection. I did not know that. Tell me about fostering, for a long time, uh, your career as a community uh, newspaper reporter. What did you get out of all that? I didn't do it for very long. I ended up going in like to the business uh, newspaper field after not long. But what did you get out of that? Because I love the hustle of it, and I love the just getting your hands dirty and being able to do everything and gaining real experience. Well, what's funny about the Times and Connection, by the way, for those who don't know, is yes. that uh, they, they were very different papers. The Times oh, yes. was a uh, broadsheet, mm-hmm. right? It was uh, your, your your New York Timesy kind of set up for a paper, and the connection was more of your New York Daily News, New York Post tabloid Correct. style. And so even the look of the papers was very uh, Springfield Shelbyville. Really <laughs> and, and we used to do the same thing in our newsroom. <laughs> the Times, it was the best. I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I worked at The Connection for like nine years. Yeah. Um, it was really funny when I started uh, as a blogger with Yahoo because there was always that perception of, well, if you're a blogger, then you have no idea what you're doing and you have no journalistic skills <laughs> or background. Quite the opposite. You're, just someone, you're a hobbyist. And, and I would say, okay, but I literally worked at a newspaper for nine years. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, know, I, I know of what I'm doing here. You know, don't let the label uh, you know, fool you. But... Um, the, the one thing I'll say about that I loved, and I think it's the background that a lot of us have in the, in the business, is that when you start out with with no assets at your disposal and editing your own stuff, or yep. you know, running up and down with a camera on the sideline on a Friday night to, to cover a high school football game, it really, really, really gives you a sense of of scope mm-hmm. and a sense of responsibility as your career progresses. And and I, you know, I wrote this uh, as we do this podcast. It just came out this week, um, a story about hockey in Alabama that published this week. Uh, real long, deep dive into the minor league teams in Alabama and the influence cool. of the National Predators in Alabama on the fan base. Mm-hmm. And that was me going to minor league games. There's no cameraman for me, no photographer for me. I'm, I'm taking pictures. I'm shooting video. I'm doing all the reporting. And it was very much kind of a throwback to those days covering high school and college sports where you're just kind of like, hey, kids, let's put on a show with your coverage. And uh, and I think that's that's a it's a real good way to do it, because I think that the, you put you put so much of yourself into it that uh, the work reflects that. So those skills are still, you know, all these years in this industry now and, and now working for ESPN. Those are still skills that I carry with me. The the, the, the one man uh, multimedia package that goes into doing this job sometimes. Yeah, kids, go find a job like that, except Times Community Newspaper ceased to exist in 2006. But we'll see. The connection's still there, so that's good. The connection's still there, but I mean, I, my starting salary, you know, when I started, and that was like, you know. Ooh, I want to know. I, I want to tell you mine, too. You tell me yours first. Well, mine, this was like close to 20 years ago. This is straight out of college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
was, I think it was 22 grand. <gasps> you bastard! I started in 1997. A little, I'm a little older than you. 17.5. Well, I mean, you know, we were the better paid. Correct. So, obviously. Uh, obviously. <laughs> if we were lowballed now, I should have worked for the connection. I take back everything I just said. Uh, I, I, I do want to at least briefly, I know you gotta go pretty soon, but I want to touch on the Puck Dad experience and, and, uh, you know, obviously you're with ESPN now, but, I, I love talking to the OG internet folks, to the <laughs> Skeets, Tasmelis types, to Will Leach, people like that. It's just about people have been around for such a long time and got their hands dirty early on and, and what that experience was like because now it's such a crowded field. And even though there are more jobs to be had, sort of, like there are more places, but it feels like there are fewer jobs available by ratio compared to the number of people that are out there, whereas then – there were no jobs, but there were like five people going after these jobs. And if you were aggressive and you were good, you can get it. What was it like in 2009 starting this enterprise from nothing and trying to build an identity for hockey and for yourself at Yahoo when there wasn't much to be had? The Internet had grown quite a bit, but that kind of cutting-edge sports blogosphere thing was very, very nascent at the time. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, like, I, I never put on airs that I wasn't extraordinarily fortunate to come up when I did. Yeah. Um, you know, because my style of writing was, was starting to creep into the zeitgeist because it's sort of that pop culture Bill Simmons-y mm-hmm. kind of jokey mm-hmm. thing, fan thing. Um, and I also came up at a time when blogs became viable. And, you know, Yahoo put together this... Uh, this, well, before that, I mean, AOL Fan House put together a group of bloggers and I was terrific. Yep. And then Jamie, Jamie Matram was the guy who founded that and then he went to Yahoo and he built their blog, you know, uh, Empire and I'm working with, you know, J.E. Skeets and, and just the, the, you know, a number of other people that, uh, were part of that first group. And, you know, it was a chance to just create something and, and like there was nothing there before. The, the name of the blog before Puck Daddy started was the NHL Experts blog. So literally anything I did that was more creative than that was going to be a hit. Fantastic. Um, and so it was at a time when, when you know, this media company was was really trying to push the envelope and figure out new ways to cover things. And, you know, it was a situation I was just reminiscing with Sean Leahy from Fox Daddy about this a couple months ago, when you could find a, a viral video on, on YouTube and then write about it the next morning. Because you were pretty sure no one else yes. had seen it by then. Yes. And and the idea that that was ever a thing <laughs> is kind of nuts now because you know if you don't if you don't turn around a video within five minutes of the play ending now it's yes. like, what's the point? Um, but you know the, the the industry is an interesting place in an interesting place. I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity um, in a lot of different places, um, but I I do think that you know more than ever you have to work outwork the, the, the person next to you and also really as we talked about this before really have a grasp of every piece of the puzzle that goes into creating content these days you know whether it's not just writing it's got to be writing and podcasting and video yeah um it's got to be a, an understanding of social um if you can't if you want to grow your brand as a writer and you don't know how to put together an Instagram story, then you're probably behind the curve. Like you got to be able to do all of this stuff now on top of being, you know, a better writer than, than, you know, 98% of the other people out there. Um, and, uh, and that's just kind of the way of the world. But I do think that there is a lot of opportunity for the people that can pull that off. And, and, uh, um, you know, I, I think the one good thing that's happened, and I know that it's not 
anywhere near where it should be. Um, but when I was coming up, uh, the diversity of the industry was yes. not exactly. No. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think that, um, over time that's changed a bit and, and, uh, and that's been encouraging to see. I, I, I worked hard to try to change it myself in the places that I worked. Yep. Um, but I think overall the industry is kind of moving a little bit there as well. And, and that's encouraging, but you know, it's, 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 uh, it was an incredible to come up at that time. You, you brought up Will Leach. I just saw him at the Deadspin Awards a couple of weeks ago, and it nice. was, uh, we were reminiscing. And it, 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 it reminds me of like like Kevin Smith and Robert Rodriguez meeting at the <laughs> Independent Spirit Awards. Which one are you? <laughs> uh, Jesus, you know which one I am. <laughs> the, the, the formerly fat guy in the hockey team. But, uh, but it's like it, it's kind of crazy to think that you know we all came up at this time that was new and different and, and creating uh, uh, things that hadn't been yeah. created before. Um, and, uh, and, and have all just kind of, you know, gotten old now, <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm making uh, Jay and Silent Bob, uh, you know, five and <laughs> leeches on spy kids, 10, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just, that's the way of the world. <laughs> uh, I agree with crediting Bill Simmons, by the way, and I highly encourage you to write an NHL trade value column this year. I'm sure that'll go really well. So, uh, last question that I want to get to is, uh, I want to ask you about puck soup and, uh, I love puck soup for many reasons. One of them is that it came into existence at a very briefly, uh, a brief shelf life of a thing that was called Nerdist Sports, which existed for 10 seconds. And it was basically you looking to spread your wings. And there was an opportunity with Dave Lozo and, uh, it became this awesome, really, really cool podcast. And it was funny and it was reverent and it was ridiculous and sublime and all those things and you've recently tweaked the format a little bit and there's some new folks and all that stuff so uh give us an update on where puck soup is at and uh what it's about i I, it's hard for me to describe exactly why people should subscribe to puck soup other than if you like me and you trust me you totally should but uh give give the folks the spiel because it's it's really i love it it's it's such a good show and and now with the new guys I, i feel great about it as well Thank you. It's, yeah, it's a it's definitely a, a mix of hockey and pop culture, and uh, and ve- various other things. It's one of these podcasts where we just kind of let the conversation take us where wherever it goes. Um, it, it is a, a cursing podcast, mostly from me, um, and a, a, a bad impressions podcast, mostly from me. Um, but yeah, so so Lozo and I did it. Uh, Lozo came on as a guest uh, host when Merrick and I were working together, and then uh, Puck Soup sort of born out of that. Yep. And we did it for a few years. And so he is now a staff writer on Katie Nolan's ESPN Plus show and uh, and kind of just indicated he couldn't really do the Puck Soup thing anymore. I, I think it's one of those burnout things, but also one of those deals where when, you, when you're tasked with writing about a bunch, writing jokes about a bunch of other sports, and then you you have to be on a podcast where you need to know the ins and outs of hockey. It could be a little bit taxing and, and I think he needed to pull the, the shoot. So, um, I recruited Ryan Lambert, uh, from Yahoo, my yep. buddy there. And then, uh, Sean McIndow, who of course is, uh, down goes Brown. Um, uh, I'm sure a guy that everybody on this podcast knows quite well. Sure. Uh, so we, we, uh, united the Triforce and, uh, and do the podcast, uh, uh, weekly. Sometimes it's me and Ryan, sometimes it's me and Sean, and, and most times it's the three of us doing it. So I think it's actually, uh, veered, uh, much more into, into hockey talk, 
Uh, that's right. Obviously, I think that's right. Uh, because those guys are uh, hardcore know, hockey hockey nerds. Yeah, and also because I don't think Sean has seen a movie <laughs> since the first Avengers movie. Um, but it's it's a great show, and and I'm really proud of it. And I'm and what what I was really proud about is that you know it was a pretty major change to have Dave leave. Yep. And so the support from the the listenership. Uh, when it came to this, sh- this show, um, was just super, uh, super important to me and super impressive that people were willing to kind of, go, you know, come with us and go different places. Um, so I thought that was really cool. Uh, I lied. One more very fast question. What was it yeah. like to be, uh, foisted, hoisted on your petard by Breitbart? That's the best thing I've ever heard. And, uh, and we, I never talked to you about it socially, Ty. I never texted you about it. It's been like a year, year and a half or something, but we never discussed it. In podcast land, Breitbart comes after you. What happens at that point? Is your social media just a disaster area? What are we talking about? It's a, it's a total disaster area. And it was, it was a, around the time of, I, I think it was a PK Subban, uh, a Kaepernick thing, I want to say. I, I forget exactly what the, the gist of it was, but it was something along those lines. And, you know, I had a take and uh, it was with, when I was with Yahoo and I, I published it and, and such. Um, and then Breitbart picked it up and uh, as Breitbart does, completely <laughs> contorted it out of, out of, uh, out of hand and then, and, and, and it just, you know, caused me a lot of grief. But the, the funniest part about it, um, is that, uh, by the way, as far as reaction to anything I do, it's a pretty simple formula. If you say something that is uh, mean to me or, or ridiculous to me or vulgar to me, and you don't follow me, then I will just mute you, and I will never have to hear from you again. That's that true. Is- Not even block, just mute. Oh, I don't. I don't give the satisfaction of nice, blocking. Nice. Muting is fine. Nice. Uh, because then, they, then they think they're still yelling at me, but they're just <laughs> screaming into the abyss. Um, but the, the the hilarious thing of the Breitbart thing was that this thing happened. I, I ended up on the front page of Breitbart <laughs> literally two days before I announced I was leaving Yahoo. Yes. And so everybody thought I got fired. <laughs> that because I was featured on Breitbart, and it was at a time when sports writers shouldn't be, you know, dabbling in, in, in these dark arts. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, everybody thought I got fired, and, and it was like I couldn't really tell anybody what I was doing quite yet. But uh, but it was pretty surreal to be like, oh, thank God they got rid of that lefty. And like, <laughs> wait, wait till you see where I'm going. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Greg, much love to you. The wish list every Friday at ESPN. Uh, ESPN on Ice with Emily Kaplan, great podcast. Puck Soup is a great podcast. Uh, the Alabama piece, I had flipped through the, the front page of the NHL page. I saw the story. I didn't realize that was your byline. I was already going to read it. Now I'm triple going to read it. So check that out and, uh, follow you on social media. Wyshynski everywhere, right? Awesome. Yeah, that is, that is, that is the one. And, uh, and, and continued success to you, sir. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Have an excellent one, and we will talk soon.